I do think the way that it's presented, where, where you get these momentary flashes of probably more lines always going to go to darker places. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yannis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to talk about their personal connection to a current or classic release. This episode, we're talking about the 1997 sci-fi horror film Event Horizon, and I'm honored to welcome back to the show John Cohorn. Welcome back to the Crooked Table podcast. Thanks so much, Rob. It's good to be back. So we're releasing this episode like right in the you know early to mid-January range. So I wanted to kind of pick your brain a little bit as far as uh, well, one to listeners. First of all, to listeners, what you uh, who you are, what you have going on, where they can uh, where they can find some of your work, and then and then we'll get into uh, my other my uh, my other question. As I mentioned to you right before we recorded, this is the first time I recorded in a while, so I'm kind of getting back in the mindset. Sure thing. We'll both get up to speed. Um, so uh, again, I'm John Cohorn. I'm a writer for ModernHorrors.com. Uh, I've been a, a film fanatic most of my life. When I was a teenager, I worked as a projectionist for years back when that actually involved 35 millimeter film all the time. Uh, when I was in college, I worked in an indie video store that was not too far removed from what you see in Clerks, and have just been, you know, an avid movie watcher for the rest of my life. Most of what I watch is horror, but uh, you know, there's other genres sprinkled in there throughout yeah it's it's um it's cool because last time you came on the show we talked about john wick and that franchise and how it's an action franchise but there's like elements of horror in in there especially the first one where he's essentially you know keanu reeves as the boogeyman so that was kind of a a a, an interesting cross-section of genres in a way and now we have sci-fi horror uh more directly obviously as far as the horror element is concerned so you know as far as 2019 looking back on the year in film what are some of the ones that um you know that really stood out to you that you found yourself revisiting you know i'm just gonna say that we have been really really fortunate in 2019 there has just been a strong slate of films throughout most of the year uh some of the things that are probably going to be on my best of are um things that i saw at film festivals and may not actually see a a, a wider release until 2020 Uh, but just off the top of my head some of my favorites have included uh josh lobo's i trapped the devil which is very much in the vein of a uh, Twilight Zone kind of story. Um, also, a movie that blew me away out of Tribeca uh, is called After Midnight. Uh, that movie was originally released under the title Something Else. The, the literal title was Something Else. Uh, and it's Jeremy Gardner and Christian Stella. It was, dire- uh, it was produced by Benson and Moorhead, and Justin Benson plays a role in it. And it's this just incredibly heartfelt mix of character study and romantic comedy and creature feature that I loved. And it completely took me by surprise. Uh, We've already spoken about John Wick. I loved that. Uh, Midsommar is one of my top movies. I've seen that like eight times now. (laughs) Um, There was a little film that I reviewed out of – Fantasia this year called Sator, S-A-T-O-R. Uh, it's almost a, a one-man affair behind the camera. It's a very small cast, um, and it's based on some some real events from the director's life, uh, and it's got some imagery in it that's 
very, very potent and haunting. Um, on top of that, Takashi Miike's new film, First Love, was excellent. Uh, the Vast of Night is uh, like a 1950s UFO story uh, that I believe has been picked up by Amazon Studios. They're going to give it a theatrical release sometime in 2020, and then it'll hit uh, prime streaming. Um, Spectre Visions, The Color Out of Space, blew me away. It is probably the best cinematic representation we've seen of H.P. Lovecraft yet. Uh, Benson and Moorhead pop up again with their new film, Synchronic, about a, uh, a drug on the streets of New Orleans that uh, causes people to travel through time and space. It's amazing. Um, the Lighthouse, uh, that thing is going to be divisive, I think, with some, but I loved it. And it's got one of the most striking images I've seen on screen all year. Um, getting closer to the end of the year, something that completely surprised me um, when I saw it in theaters was A24's Waves. Um, I did not have any expectations and that movie brought me to tears. And it's also got a great soundtrack by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, who have been super busy the last couple of years. Uh, a 24 continued that streak with uncut gems, uh, easily the best thing that Adam Sandler has done in years. Um, and then I actually just watched another movie from Spectre vision that took me by surprise. Uh, Daniel isn't real, uh, which is kind of like this, a psychosexual head trip of a movie that also incorporates some of the more psychedelic imagery that we saw in films like Mandy. So again, that's a whole long list for the listeners to, to maybe chase down if any of that sounds interesting. But 2019 was a bumper year for great film. Yeah, I noticed, I think you mentioned at least three, probably maybe even four A24 movies in there. And they, yeah, they really continue to kill it. I did an episode not long ago uh, on The Farewell, which was another one of their big breakouts this year because they did Waves, they did uh, Midsommar and The Lighthouse. And uh, yeah, they're really, uh, they're really, and Uncut Gems, I think, too. They're a really consistent source of really, uh, I don't know, not, not, I don't want to say cutting edge, but really like unique voices. And it's like a, it's like a, a creative haven for these filmmakers to really go apeshit with their visions or whatever genre that may be. And I thought that was, uh, I just wanted to point out the fact that you brought up A24 several times. I'm like, well, A24 had a really strong year. Well, that's been on my mind. That's been on my mind quite a bit the last couple of days, both A24 and Spectre Vision as well. Um, has done some incredible work this year, our 2019 slash 2020. Um, and a large part of it is championing voices and stories that other studios probably wouldn't touch and definitely wouldn't give the same kind of push and prestige to. So um, I'm game for just about anything that either of those studios puts out at this point, even if it's something that on the surface it seems like I might not be into. I think you're seeing that with a lot of uh, production companies now that I feel like a lot of them are starting to embrace more like the Blumhouse model where here you go, here's 5 million, go figure it out, you know, and just kind of these micro budget films where the filmmakers are then able to retain essentially full creative control because it's such a small, you know, um, financial risk on the, on the studio's part or the production company's part. And I, I think that I really hope that's a trend that we continue to see more of because it's really been bearing fruit. I know A24 specifically, again, to go back to them, they've had a lot of success as far as award seasons concerned and things like that in the past. So hopefully, hopefully we'll see more production companies really, um, kind of embrace that, that model. Cause it tends to really yield interesting, if not, you know, if not divisive work in some cases. 
And at the very least, it's it's fodder for conversation and discussion. And, uh, you know, some of these movies I just want to dive into and experience over and over and over, as you can tell by how many times I've watched Midsommar. Right. Uh, but, you know, seeing voices like that, Ari Aster, Robert Eggers, um, the the care and the detail that they put into their films is is really just what's the hook in my mouth. Yeah, it's I think it was. I feel like it was Spielberg a few year, few years ago who said that the industry is kind of just bifurcating in these huge like three hundred million dollar movies and then the li- the little like five to ten million dollars. So we're going to see just more A twenty four and Marvel are going to be the last the last the last <laughs> studios standing basically. Those are your those are your options. So um, but yeah, I think that's that's uh, those are a lot of really great recommendations. I actually haven't even seen some of those myself. I, I think uh, Midsommar, I don't know if I connected to it as much as you, but it's definitely one that I've been on, it's been on my mind. Like I've been, it's still, it's still kind of haunting me a little bit, the ending of that movie. And yes. I remember coming out of the theater and, you know, not to spoil the ending for that movie, but the ending, you're just like, what the fuck? It's like, it's a very <laughs> impressive ending, uh, the way that that story is resolved. And again, not to spoil for people that haven't seen it. Um, so I came out of there kind of shell-shocked. And uh, one of my one of my good friends' brothers, who who still lives, you know, my, my friend uh, Avin moved away, but his brother's still local. So I came out, and he was there randomly, just like he had been at the movie theater with another friend who went in that movie and was like going to meet them. So I came out and was like, oh, a friendly face, <laughs> exactly what I needed coming out of Midsommar. <laughs> just like had to like process that movie. So um, yeah, I think I think uh, Ari Aster and uh, Robert Eggers and all those. It's yeah, it's been a really good year for movies, regardless of the the genre that you're into. So I'm looking forward to digging into Event Horizon with you, since it is obviously more directly a, a horror film. Yes. And, you know, before we get too far into it, as as I was going back and, and watching it again, and I guess over the last couple of days, this has been my second and third watch of it in roughly the last year. Earlier this year, uh, the Alamo Draft House in Austin showed a 35 millimeter print of it as part of their Terror Tuesday screenings. And so that was the first time that I had ever seen it on the big screen. I didn't catch it when it was first released theatrically. I got turned on to it uh, when it hit DVD a few years later. Um, And so I watched the theatrical cut on the big screen earlier this year. And then as we were preparing for tonight, I went and watched the the director's cut or the extended cut that that they put on DVD some years back. And there are all of these little connections and, and, you know, tangential relations that that started to pop up in my mind. Um, First and and foremost, this is very much a a film that strikes me as as Hellraiser in space, which Mm -hmm. is a little bit odd because just a year earlier, Hellraiser Bloodline had come out, which was the fourth Hellraiser film had kind of a problematic development. The director took his name off of it, but a good portion of of that movie is set in space. And on top of that, then you have um, Sam Neill playing a character that in some ways is similar to the character that he played in John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness a few years earlier. You know, this this man experiencing things that are so far beyond human experience and comprehension that it kind of drives him insane. Um, and then on top of that, you have Lawrence Fishburne just a couple of years before mm-hmm. he takes that iconic turn as, as Morpheus. But there are 
parts of the film where you can kind of start to see that connection. You know, they're in this kind of old rundown ship and um, it's just kind of interesting to see all of these threads at play. You know, none of them are really direct um, connections, but it's, it's in my mind as I go through and watch this film again. I definitely picked up on some of those, especially The Matrix, which is essentially one of my favorite movies. Uh, yeah, having having Lawrence Fishburne as the a captain of a kind of rundown ship, uh, <laughs> I, I definitely picked up on some of those parallels. And the movie, I, I think just aesthetically, it really reminded me of not even like the story at all, but it reminded me of a little bit of some, something like Dark City, which I talked about on this podcast yes. with Jeff Johnson, who we both know from CF3. And... Um, uh, yeah, so I uh, I, I think it, there was something about this sort of uh, not techno noir, but like this this it was a very similar late '90s kind of uh, EDM soundtrack aesthetic of like this was what the, we all thought the future was going to be like, or at least cinematically. And it's it's this strange combination of both high tech and low tech. Yeah, uh, you know, you have this these spaceships that are able to bend space and time and travel across the universe, but then you also have data stored on you know optical discs like a CD, or you've got uh, a section where they're trying to uh, translate the Latin, and the guy is using an old school tape recorder. Um, so it it is this kind of like high tech, low tech that, that reminds me of, you know, the original alien or things like Firefly or, or, uh, you know, other sci-fi, uh, programs that, that blend the two together. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So before we get any further into talking about the film, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer for Event Horizon right now. At 0300 this morning, TDRS picked up an automated navigation beacon broadcasting at two minute intervals in Neptune orbit. Neptune orbit. This is incredible. It's the event horizon. She's come back. The event horizon is the culmination of a secret government project to create a spacecraft capable of faster than light flight. The ship doesn't really go faster than light. What it does is it creates a dimensional gateway that allows it to jump instantaneously from one point of the universe to another light years away. Where has she been for the last seven years, Doctor? That's what we're here to find out. After seven years in deep space. There were 18 people on board this ship when it disappeared. I want them all accounted for. Opening outer door. It came back abandoned. Any crew? Negative. This place is a tomb. But it didn't come back alone. That was a little bit of the trailer for Event Horizon, directed by Paul Anderson. Later, later would officially go by Paul W. S. Anderson, not Paul Thomas Anderson. Completely different, totally different filmmaker. Um, I think that's so funny that you have those two directors with such similar names who couldn't be different as far as their style, their place in the industry, and all that stuff. Um, I just did an episode recently on Punch Drunk Love. Uh, so it's it's kind of funny to to be doing another Paul Anderson movie. Um, uh, so this one came out August 15, 1997. Uh, it did 26.7 million at the box office against a 60 million dollar production budget. So not not a big hit uh, at the box office. And you mentioned that you hadn't seen this uh, in its original theatrical run. So when did you come across it, and what was your initial reaction? 
So the first time that I saw it was its initial DVD release. Um, so that probably, if I had to guess, was around 99 or 2000, okay. maybe a little bit earlier. Um, and then a couple of years later, they, they put out an expanded version that had the, the extended cut on it and had the commentary and some uh, supplemental features and things like that. Um, I don't remember even hearing that much about it when it was initially released. You know, Paul Anderson at that point was not really a, a household name. I think prior to Event Horizon, he had made two films. Uh, one of those was a Soldier, which came out when I was working in a movie theater. And I didn't even watch that, even though I watched pretty much everything. Um, and then he did Mortal Kombat. Uh, and so Mortal Kombat was this huge success here in the United States. Um, also had a very uh, electronic music heavy soundtrack, if I remember correctly. Um, and after that, he was pretty much given carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. And he was actually offered uh, the opportunity to do an X-Men movie after Mortal Kombat. But he turned it down because he wanted to do something darker and a little more scary. And Event Horizon is what came out of that. And in the commentary uh, at, at the beginning of the film, he's talking about uh, some of the influences and some of the things that, that he wanted to, to do. And he said that he had this idea of uh, he wanted to do a film that was kind of a haunted house in space. And the three films that he referenced as, um, as inspirations as, as they were working on this uh, were The Haunting, the Shining and 2001, which I thought was kind of an interesting combination of, of influences. It's like Alien minus the Alien, too, a little bit as far as, you know, which, again, that film has a very haunted house in space concept behind it. You're absolutely right. Um, and, you know, there, there has been argument here and there about whether this film is an alien ripoff or, or anything like that. And in the commentary, they specifically mention Alien as being an influence on the look of the film, you know, the, the structure of the ship, the way that it's lit, the way that it looks. So I can, I can see that, but I think that that specific influence goes a little bit further because uh, I get a similar feeling with the crew. You know, you've got a crew, you don't really know a whole lot of their background but just from their interactions you you see that they've all got you know different experiences and different specialties but they've kind of come together as as this family for better or for worse out in the middle of you know of this vast emptiness yeah and that's that's where the alien parallels really came into my head because obviously the alien tagline that everybody knows is in space no one can hear you scream on well, this one is basically like in space no one can hear crazy shit happen <laughs> basically <laughs> and and it, it's that it's really exploring the the terror of the unknown that that happens in space and what I thought was interesting about this film and where it takes it a little a step further is that it's kind of it's blending uh, sort of science and, and faith in, in a really interesting way where they're kind of almost one and the same. Yes, it, it looks at where those potentially intersect. And I think that they leave it open enough to interpretation to where everybody can come to their own conclusion. You know, they don't they don't actually say this is, you know, the uh, you know, the the textbook definition of, of hell from a religious sense. Right. But in in human understanding, everything that we see from from that dimension and from that experience and what comes through certainly seems like it. 
Yeah, it does. I mean, and they and they talk. There's a great exchange with uh, Fishburne and Neil, who we'll get we'll get into their performances in in a minute. Um, where he says, I think he says something like, "Oh, it, you know, into hell or or something like that." Fishburne says, and then and then uh, we are is like, "Oh, hell is just a word. What I'm talking about is much much worse." That kind of thing. Where it is, it's like. Again, it reminds me think of uh, something like uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which I was a big fan of that show, where she died and went to this other dimension, which was not technically heaven, but sort of kind of heaven. It's like that kind of deal where it it is what you perceive it to be. And I think that's really um, that's a really interesting way to to view the afterlife and, and whether it's just a different plane of existence scientifically or whether that's there's some kind of spiritual component there. I, I think the movie, as you mentioned, I think the movie does kind of toe that line in an interesting way. Yes, absolutely. And so the, the theatrical version uh, did have a good number of, of bits cut out, sometimes even single frames, uh, you know, because there are brief flashes as, as the movie goes on of what happened to the, the previous crew and what they experienced when they, they went through the wormhole. And they're pretty horrific. Mm-hmm. I did a little bit of research on that, uh, that there was, there's, uh, well, there was all kinds of like mutilations involved. I think there was some sex acts happening and, it, and based on my research, it said something about that. He, they hired like porn, porn actors, to make those everything seem like more realistic with that regard and stuff. So I don't, the, the ironic thing behind this movie is that, as you said, he left, uh, turned down other movies, including Mortal Kombat Annihilation. B- good, good decision, Paul W.S. Anderson, um, to, uh, to go darker and R rated. And then his vision got chopped down that to the point that I just watched the theatrical version, the 95 minutes. And I was like, this feels like it was cut down a lot. Like it feels like there's chunks of informa- information, information, missing and and um so you're saying that there is a completed like decent quality uh director's cut out there well i don't think that the 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 extended cut that was released is complete Mm -hmm. i if i remember correctly there there were actually some sequences that were were lost or have yet to be uncovered Uh, but there there is a longer version that does add some additional story and and gore to the film and um in in the director's commentary, uh, and I, I'll be a little bit vulgar here, but you'll understand where I'm going with it. Um, he describes the, the the scenes showing the death and, and torture of the original crew as an orgiastic death scene where they tore each other apart while fucking each other. Wow. Um, and so it, it probably would, uh, would stand to reason that, yeah, maybe he did get some porn actors in on that. Mm-hmm. Um, something else that I that I thought was kind of interesting is that those sequences uh, would normally be the kind of thing that was handled by a second unit director, but uh, for for those specific sequences, uh, Anderson took a separate crew and shot those uh, during days that the the main film crew had off uh, because he wanted to be involved with the crafting of those sequences. What a shame that we never really got to see that, like uh, his vision kind of brought to life in the in the proper way then. And, and, you know, to Paramount's credit that they were willing to spend, I guess, $60 million on this movie that it sounds like was never really going to be a mainstream success. I mean, let's be realistic about it. I didn't I don't I don't think that movie back then now would really make, 
you know, a huge amount of that budget back uh, just because it does feel like something that is so niche and so specific and in the, uh, you know, the audience that it would appeal to. It seems like it was destined to become a cult film. And in, in my opinion, for whatever it's worth, uh, I still to this day think that that's the best film that Anderson has made. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't uh, a I wasn't uh, into, I never watched his earlier film, Soldier. Uh, I didn't really care about watching the Mortal Kombat movie. I was appalled at, at how the, the Resident Evil films were handled. I was going to say uh, the 14 Resident Evil movies he did <laughs> after this. <laughs> well, I was, uh, I, so Resident Evil was the game that got me to buy the first PlayStation. Okay. And there, was, there were rumors and I guess they were substantiated to some degree, uh, but the rumor was that George Romero was going to direct a Resident Evil movie based on that first game. Uh, and so, you know, I was bummed when he left, but I figured, hey, I'll, I'll give this a shot when it comes out. And the uh, the first Resident Evil movie is is more of an action movie with just some horror trappings placed on it. I was I was thoroughly unimpressed. Yeah, I um I saw Resident Evil I think in theaters and I was like, "Eh, okay, I'm good now." Um I saw Alien versus Predator when it came out again, another hugely missed opportunity, and I was a fan of Mortal Kombat when it came out just because I was like 12 when it came out, so I was really into the games at that point. But I mean, looking back on it, it it's not, you know, a great movie or anything. Um it's just it's it's a nostalgic thing for me. So yeah, he's got an a really interesting uh like all over the place filmography again more focus on sort of the the B movie sci-fi horror uh cross section right and you know he he seems like a he seems like a nice guy and everything that yeah. I've that I've seen and read about him it's just so much of his filmography doesn't resonate with me but this really did um and it the movie came out at this interesting time where um for a film like this, you were still seeing a combination of different approaches to the effects. There was some early CG used. Uh, some of it has held up better than other. Uh, there's There are parts of it that, that look really dated. But there was also a lot of use of matte paintings and model work. And some of the model work looks really, really good. Yeah, the practical effects, I thought, looked really solid. The design elements, the production uh, the production design of the film. But yeah, as you mentioned, like the, the opening, one of the opening shots, there's all those items like cans or whatever floating. Yes. And I was like, Oh my gosh, wow. <laughs> this is like really, really bad effects. Uh, it's just, Oh, the nineties when CG was in its infancy. Yes. Um, yes. It, there's a wrench that flies by and there's yeah. also, there's also a book that has a picture of, uh, Paul Anderson, uh, that says something like Anderson, a life in film or something like that. It's basically like just a, a brief director cameo of a supposed autobiography that he wrote at some point. Nice. <laughs> well, you mentioned the design of the film and there are some really interesting aspects to that as well. Um, the design of the actual event horizon ship uh, was based in part on elements taken from Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, uh, which I thought was really, really cool. Um, and they also uh, they attributed some of the visual design to being inspired by photographer Joel Peter Witkin, um, who 
some people may already be familiar with, uh, a lot of Whitkin's style was eight for the Nine Inch Nails video for the song Closer. So it's really okay. this strange mix of the beautiful and the horrific. Um, but the film was shot by a cinematographer named Adrian Biddle, um, who was the first person signed to the production um, aside from, you know, the, the director and the writer. Um, and he has a pretty impressive filmography. Sadly, he passed away, I believe in 2005, he was relatively young. He was only 53 years old. Uh, but his resume includes movies like aliens and the princess bride and willow and Thelma and Louise. He worked on some very big films with some very influential directors. And I, I think the look of the film, even though sometimes the uh, limitations of technology or, or budget show through, I, I think the look of the film is pretty impressive. Yeah, the the, the core and like the, the interior of the film is just, it, it really it really holds up in that regard, I think. And um, it, it helps to distinguish this movie from, again, a lot of the other sort of sci-fi horror noir uh, films that were happening at the time. I think it's it's probably one of the strongest elements of the production. And then you have, you know, the makeup and the design, especially later on with Weir, which again, as you, you already mentioned, Hellraiser, I already had that in my notes, because he's talking about a dimension of pure chaos, chaos, pure evil. I was like, okay, so this sounds like we need an Event Horizon Hellraiser crossover, because that sounds exactly where the uh, the Cenobites come from. Right. Well, and so on, on the director's commentary, they mention Hellraiser as being an influence to their design of the gravity core. Mm-hmm. But honestly, I, I have to say, I, I believe it probably goes a little bit deeper than that, because uh, what we see and, uh, and what we experience throughout the film, it does feel very much at home in, in the Hellraiser universe. And arguably, is, is a better representation of what Hellraiser in space could be than the segments that were included in Bloodline. Um, especially towards the end when Weir has fully gone over to the dark side or whatever you want to call it. Um, all of those effects, the, the runes and the, and the, the cuttings just carved into his skin all over his entire body. Um, that, that is practical effects. He's basically, you know, wearing uh, a full body prosthetic. Uh, and that's, that to me is one of the most striking images throughout the film. Since this movie does have such visual uh, similarities to something like Hellraiser, let's talk about that franchise for a second. I have only seen the first one and I enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, I'm assuming you're more familiar with the Hellraiser franchise. Are there any, you know, highlights in that uh, in that series that you would recommend to myself and listeners? Well, so when it comes to Hellraiser, I will slum it. There, there are a lot of really bad Hellraiser movies, but there's only one of them that I don't have on my shelf. <laughs> so uh, realistically, uh, for most people, I think you're going to be completely okay just sticking with Hellraiser or maybe Hellraiser and Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. Okay. Um, those two are pretty much hands down far and above the rest of the series. Um, Hellraiser 3 uh, tries to turn it into like a late 80s, early 90s slasher and fails on a lot of levels. It has a few memorable sequences, but uh, then you get into things with like a a Cenobite that uh, 
throws CDs at people to kill people, and it gets oh, it, it's ridiculous. Um, Hellraiser Four was a very interesting idea. Um, the The concept behind that film was tracing the the box from its origin. Um, you know, back in, I believe, the, the times of the French Revolution up through modern day and then on to its supposed ultimate destruction in the future. And so uh, there are sequences that take place on a uh, space station um, that is actually uh, constructed to be um, a box in its own right that can destroy the, the lament configuration. Uh, if I remember correctly, uh, Bloodline was the last one to get a theatrical release. Everything past then has been direct to video. And a number of those films, which I believe there are another six or at this point maybe even seven films. I believe it's six. Um, a good number of those are existing scripts that kind of had the Hellraiser template shoehorned in. Um, some of them are passable. A lot of them are really terrible. Uh, but even the ones that, that some people really dislike, uh, there are certain elements that are, are worthy of checking out. Um, in fact, the first direct-to-video one, Hellraiser Inferno, uh, it kind of establishes a, a template that we see play out several times where it's kind of like a you know, a, a detective story and the detective gets pulled into the world of the Cenobites and, you know, is the cop good? Is the cop dirty? What all is going on? Uh, but that one was directed by Scott Derrickson, who would go on to direct films like Sinister and Doctor Strange. Um, so it's it's kind of interesting to see uh, to see a director like that early in their career working on an established property that had kind of um, maybe had a little of the shine taken off. Uh, but then you get into things like hell world where, uh, it all takes place in like this Hellraiser online video game, but it does feature Lance Henriksen. Um, the only one that I don't own is Hellraiser revelation, which was just a last minute rush job so that dimension could keep the rights. Uh, and it, it features what people often refer to as fat pinhead or great value pinhead. You may have seen those pictures online, but, uh, the actor who curiously enough is, is not a, uh, not a fat person. Uh, but in the makeup, he just looks chubby and he, he doesn't cut the imposing figure that Doug Bradley did. Um, so after that one, there was, uh, one other one that came out, Hellraiser Judgment, uh, and Hellraiser was played by a different actor, Paul Taylor, who is up in the Dallas area. And I thought that he did a really good job in it. Now, that uh, that film also is not completely successful. It's, it's low budget, but it has some interesting ideas that kind of expand the world. So, um, like I said, there's only one of them that I don't own. I, I revisit them pretty frequently, but there's more bad than good in that series. Yeah, it does feel like one of those horror franchises that had a really strong start and then just descended into straight, uh, straight to video, you know, uh, I, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting one. Cause I mean, you've seen so many of these old horror franchises getting rebooted or restarted or whatever. So I, I've, I'm doing a little research as we're talking about it and it looks like there is some kind of a reboot slash TV series in the works for Hellraiser. I think there's a lot of potential there. And uh, this, yes. this movie, if nothing else, made me want to be like, crap, I need to go back and watch some of that, at least the second Hellraiser, because <laughs> the first one ends with sort of a, you know, direct leading into the, the second film. So I never actually got to see that 
finish playing out. So I would just, yeah, we just, uh, I wanted to have a little bit of a Hellraiser corner because I figured you have some, uh, some insight that I don't have. So I'll yes. definitely, yeah, I'll definitely check out Hellbound. And I do believe that, that there's a lot of Hellraiser's DNA in Event Horizon. Uh, it, it, I mean, you just can't deny it from, from the look of the film, from designs of portions of the ship to the, just the whole idea of this, this hellish dimension that, that these things are coming out of. That's, that's Hellraiser through and through. And to me, it, it is so interesting that within roughly a year's time, we got Hellraiser's take on what would this look like in outer space. And we got Event Horizon. And Event Horizon, out of the two, I think, is a much more successful film and what it tries to accomplish. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit about the performances and the cast here, because the I, you know I knew about... Uh, Lawrence Fishburne and Sam Neill, but I didn't realize Kathleen Quinlan, Jolie Richardson, Richard T. Jones, and uh, Jason Isaacs, Sean Pertwee, who was on, uh, just watched for five seasons on Gotham as Alfred Pennyworth. Um, I, uh, I I really like the the uh, the cast here and the characters that they create. There is a certain element of, well, this is the science guy. This one's the funny one. This is the no-nonsense, you know, muscle or whatever. Um, but I, I think for the most part, they lend a lot of gravitas to this. And, uh, you know, you're dealing with hell and space, essentially. So you kind of need the actors to ground that emotionally. And I think the, this cast does a tremendous job uh, in doing so. Absolutely. And and like we touched on earlier, they, they do have that kind of like almost familial camaraderie that, that you saw in Alien. Um but but they're unique. Now I don't think that everything works a hundred percent. You know the uh, the the whole calling the the one guy baby bear just mm-hmm. that gets on my nerves for some reason. And then there's the the ridiculously funny moment where um, I forget I forget the character's name, uh, but he is outside in the spacesuit and he's zooming across. He's here I come, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, I think uh, that's, uh, what's it, Richard T. Jones. That's uh, Cooper, I think, right? Cooper, I believe you're yeah. right. Yes. Yeah, there's a couple moments where people yell just randomly, where Lawrence Fishburne's <laughs> Captain Miller is like trying to get to Justin because he's on this, you know, he's he's like, I'm not going to go back there. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, decompress myself and, and commit suicide. And he's like flying towards the ship. He's like, you're not going to die. And he's like, Justin. I was like, okay, <laughs> dial it down guys. There's a, there's a few moments like that. Again, very late nineties action movie. Like when all the, uh, you know, Schwarzenegger and Stallone had to like yell slash murmur every two seconds. Um, that's uh, yeah, that was, that was another moment. I was like, okay, it's, but it started is, dating it. It is a strong cast. Uh, Sean Pertwee just the year before had had uh, come out of Train Spotting, um, mm-hmm. which you know I, I think was probably the first thing that I had seen him in, um, and so those those roles couldn't be further apart. Um, but I, I love his character here. I think that um, Jolie Richardson is really really good in this role as as is kathleen quinlan if you'll just excuse the whole baby bear thing Mm -hmm. um and i like the fact that pretty much everybody gets a moment you know um not not everyone gets a big flashy moment but everybody gets a moment that defines their character or makes them stand out um and i i actually misspoke i was i was uh thinking about Sean Pertwee, and, and he was not actually in 
train spotting. I was wrong on that point. (laughs) Yeah. He's, he's, he's really good in this. I mean, they they all are, like you said. And I think, um, the, the, the way that the apparitions, I guess we'll call them the, the, uh, the different visions that they have. It felt to me again, drawing, drawing a parallel with another TV show that I watched. It reminded me very, it was very similar to something like lost where it's like everybody, had this emotional baggage, this secret, this fear, whatever. And it's like try, basically trying to force them to face it. And I thought that was a really smart way to have this, you know, have this chaos, have the jump scares and all that other good stuff, this horrific imagery, but also keep it character based where everybody, uh, you know, it touched, you, you learn about everybody's past as the movie's progressing, as you're witnessing what, uh, what images are haunting them and all that. And I, and I thought that was really effective. Yes, yes. Uh, there's there's that instance with Sam Neill where he's seeing uh, his wife attempt suicide. Um, ev- everybody kind of has these character moments, um, and I I can't remember fully. Is that is that sequence also in the uh, the theatrical cut, or is that something that was just put back into the extended cut? I There's a s- believe it is. It might pr- it's probably okay. more graphic uh, or more you know um, explicit in in the uh, extended cut, but it, it is in the theatrical version as well. Yeah. Okay. I I mean that there's not uh, an outrageous amount of gore in that sequence, but that that's a pretty horrific scene. Um, you know, he's sitting there reliving this memory, powerless to do anything about it, powerless to change anything about it. Um, and, and that, that to me is, is pretty horrific, even without buckets of blood. Um, one thing that, that stood out to me too, that I think was pretty effective is there are several sequences throughout the film where you see people who have either clawed their own eyes out Mm. or had eyes removed. And uh, I guess originally they were going to use an effect where they just used uh, white contacts um, and and had the people's eyes whited out. And so this was something that that combined um, a practical prosthetic with some additional CGI work. And while the CGI is not 100% effective, it still looks pretty disturbing. Yeah, I think it mostly works. And and yeah, I I um it, it's funny cuz I hadn't seen this movie until recently. It's one of those that I was aware of and I I you know, I've seen frames of it all over and over over the years like Sam Neill with no eyes. So I was almost kind of waiting. I'm like, "All right, when's he cutting his eyes out?" And then when it happened, I was like, "Oh, there it is. That's the part I remember from just like, you know, random, you know, whatever on the internet or like looking at the video store and seeing the box and things like that." But yeah, like he says in towards the end of the movie, it's like, "Where we're going, we don't need eyes to see." I thought that was it works. I mean, it's like, like you said, it doesn't, it doesn't look a hundred percent, uh, realistic, but it's enough to, you know, those are supposed to be mostly apparitions and mostly visions anyway. So it, it kind of lends it almost an otherworldly feel, which I think in a way kind of strengthens the moment. Yes. Yes. And then, you know, we, we see an effect that, uh, I think was probably done a little bit better, uh, in another movie, uh, that I'll mention in a moment, but uh, it's still pretty effective when the when the gravity comes on and the frozen body drops and just shatters into pieces. Um, I remember that that being a moment that that stood out to me. I think um, Jason X probably pulls it off a little bit better, where you know someone's head is frozen in liquid nitrogen and then uh, and then smashed. It smashes it, it. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but 
that that moment does stand out. And evidently, when they were testing the effect, the uh, the crews put a Barbie doll inside the the model of the body. And so when they were testing it out the first time, they dropped the body, it shatters, and out pops this Barbie doll. <laughs> So one of the other things that they mentioned is, as kind of um, being an inspiration to this, this story about you know, a, a, a ghost ship, basically, is uh, tales of, of ghost ships when we think about them more, more commonly. And they, they specifically mentioned the legends around the Marie Celeste and the Flying Dutchman. Um, and I think that there is always just something frightening about uh, anything that has been abandoned and shouldn't be, that's something that, uh, you know, from, from my earliest childhood hearing about something like the, the Roanoke colony that disappeared, uh, there's just something inherently haunting about that. And I think they use that to, to good effect here. Yeah. There's a little bit of a campfire story element to, uh, to this discovery as far as what happened to the event horizon. And then, you know, the, the garbled message, which we then see sort of, I, I don't know, do we see it or do the characters see? I think they see a video of what happened as well, briefly. Uh, yeah, and the, the video is kind of garbled and that's right. where they, they, they pull the audio from. And uh, yeah. at, at first they, they think that the Latin says, save me. Uh, but then later on, they, they get the full transcription and that's not at all what was said. <laughs> save yourself from hell. Basically. Yes. Yeah, that's um, and and it's so funny too because part of the reason I didn't watch this movie until recently is because I was like, oh, I've heard that's some crazy shit. I don't know. I have to like make time and clear my head before I watch that. And then watching the movie, I was like, this wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be because I think probably the, the mystique that's surrounded the film in the you know twenty plus years since it came out uh, regarding all the stuff that was cut and all the like the original version of the of the film and what it was supposed to entail how how detailed it was supposed to get into what was happening yes well and i i will say that myself and and some of my horror movie loving friends when the extended version was first put out on dvd um we sat at home with the with the remote and just you know uh, forwarded frame by frame through through some of those scenes, and there there are some horrific things that are shown, but it's almost a subliminal effect, mm-hmm. even even the the extended cut because it's so quickly. So your mind just barely has a chance to register what's going on. Uh, if you remember in the design of the the gravity core room, um, it's it's almost like a spherical room that houses the core itself, and there are these big spikes coming out from the walls. And so there are there are images of people that are impaled on those spikes. You know, there are images of of people that have had their their eyes ripped out and their mouths damaged. It it's pretty horrific stuff. Do you think that the movie those sequences would have been more effective had they left those in and really kind of focused on them, or do you think in a way it's almost more effective as far as? Uh, you know, creating genuine scares to just have everything flash by sort of disorienting? That's a difficult question to answer because I think in some instances, less is more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I I will admit to being a fan of a, a number of, of gore films, but a lot of times with those, 
after you've seen them a, a time or two, especially as, as you get older and you see more movies, both right. good and bad, um, it, it almost starts to take on an unintentionally comedic effect because you can tell what the gag is. You know, you can see it coming a mile away. You can tell where the prosthetics are. Um, I think that there's probably a middle ground where they could have shown a little bit more, but still kept that um, that almost subliminal feel to it. But I, I think that if, if everything was shown, if it was just all laid out, um, then it probably would not have the same impact. Yeah. I think, I think the movie wisely doesn't give up its entire hand in that regard. And I, uh, but it's, you know, considering a movie like this, that has that whole legend or product legend behind the production and what the movie could have been. I think it's always kind of interesting to speculate on how, how that would have worked exactly. Sure. And you know, if five or 10 years down the road, someone discovers the missing sequences and they restore it and put it out again, I'd probably buy it just to watch (laughs) it. And at that point I might say, you know what? They should have put that in, but I just as likely be saying, no, it's probably better that they kept it out. Uh, I, I think that leaving it up to the imagination of the viewers uh, a lot of times is the more effective route. And I, I fully say that as someone who likes some pretty brutal horror movies. <laughs> That's kind of a uh, a decent transition into, you mentioned at the top of the show, you want to talk about the Amazon TV show that they're developing. So uh, how do you, you know, I guess, what do we know about that so far? I know Adam Wingard is involved. I'm probably yeah, going to so, direct some of that. So go ahead. So we're going to enter the realm of pretty much pure speculation at this point. So uh, this kind of caught fire back in early August. Uh, Variety had an article stating that Adam Wingard was going to be executive producing and directing a series based on Event Horizon for Amazon. Um, and then as soon as they put that up, you know, countless other sites picked it up and ran with it. And so in preparing for for recording this show tonight, I went back and and tried to chase down and see what other information is out there. And at least publicly available information, there's not a whole lot. Um, So, you know, what we do know is that Amazon and Paramount are working together. Um, Wingard is set to, to produce and direct at least some of it. Um, some of the original, um, producers of the film are on board as well, but you know, that may just be in an executive producer role where they just kind of have their names on it and get a cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is not really any time frame for us to expect this. There has been no talent announced. Um, if you go onto IMDb, there is a brief entry, but you can't see really anything other than the title unless you, uh, are subscribed to the professional service. And, um, so there's not a whole lot out there. Uh, but the idea of, of this being done is pretty intriguing to me. So Adam Wingard's filmography is not unlike that of, Paul Anderson. Although I will say that overall, I like more films that that Wingard has done than Anderson has done. That said, I don't like everything that he's done, uh, but he's he's done some pretty effective things. My favorites being Your Next and The Guest, which came out back to back almost. 
several years ago and are really effective. Um, so the, the thought of him taking on this property is, is pretty intriguing to me. He often works with Simon Barrett uh, as a writing partner whose work I really, I really enjoy. Um, and he also often works with uh, Steve Moore on the soundtrack and score. And if, if Steve Moore gets attached to this, I will freak out. Uh, he used to be in a band called Zombie. And uh, I don't think Zombie has broken up, but Steve Moore today is, is primarily working on scoring movies. Um, he, he scored uh, The Guest. Uh, recently, he has scored a lot of Joe Bigos's films. So he recently worked on Bliss and VFW. Um, really, really great work that's inspired a lot by uh, John Carpenter and Vangelis and, and synth scores from, you know, back in the 70s and 80s. So I think since this movie is essentially a cult classic, it's pretty clear that the show will probably just be a fresh restart. So what, you know, what do you, what would you want that to, to be? What would you want it to cover or, and what level of gore would you like to see it go to? Well, so we're completely spitballing here, oh, for sure. but you know, let's, let's just say, you know, a typical streaming show first season is probably going to get, let's just say nine episodes. You know, some of them are shorter, some of them are longer, but eight or nine episodes is, is going to be kind of the sweet spot. So that gives you a lot more time than you had with the original. So I could almost see uh, something that runs parallel storylines where you have the crew of the Lewis and Clark going out to to search for and recover the event horizon playing out in the like present storyline. And then you also have a parallel storyline that's showing you what happened with the event horizon. Uh, I think that that would lend itself to fleshing out the story and the world a little bit more. It would give you an opportunity to throw some additional scares in there. Uh, it's got, it's got some familiar, uh, storylines for fans of the original film, but it's also got enough fresh stuff to keep them guessing. Um, that's kind of what, what I would, would think, you know, what I, what I don't want is just telling the same story and padding it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I would be shocked if the, uh, the original crew of the event horizon isn't a central part of it. Like either they, they do like sort of a, a dual focus, like you like you mentioned, or that we just follow the initial Event Horizon crew before any right. of the things happens with the Lewis and Clark. Um, but I actually kind of like your idea because I think that lends to a lot of dramatic cuts of the the crew of the Event Horizon going out there, like I got a good feeling about this mission, and then cut to what Lewis and Clark is discovering, and you're like, oh no no, <laughs> it did not go according to plan. Um, I think that kind of thing um, could be it could be interesting as far as contrasting those two missions and sort of the uh you know the the I mean the crew members of the Van Horizon kind of appearing to the the crew members of Lewis and Clark and that kind of thing. I, I think that's kind of a smart way to approach it. And I, I definitely think they're not gonna do the an expanded version on this. I think just because there there is so much I mean this is the this movie barely scratches the surface of a, a potential mythology expansion that can happen. Uh, with the dimension that's on the other end of that black hole. So, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of room for uh, growth here. Well, and so much of what we saw in the film, uh, the the abilities of, of the event horizon and this, this power that they've harnessed uh, deals with, you know, kind of 
bending the distance in space. But, you know, they could also start to play with, okay, how does it affect time? Mm. And that kind of brings some some different things in where you could play with those parallel storylines as well. And like you mentioned a moment ago, seeing the, the original crew appear to the crew, the Lewis and Clark or, or whoever is is trying to rescue them. So I, I think it opens it up for some some pretty interesting uh, interplay between the past and the present. Um, I'm down for it. I, I hope that this is not something that just gets stuck in development hell. I know that uh, Wingard right now is on post-production for Godzilla vs. Kong, and that's been pushed around a couple of times. Um, I, I hope that that movie is not um, either, you know, experiencing some production troubles or ends up being a flop and potentially impacting this because uh, I'd like to see him given the opportunity to tackle something like this. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of uh, genre television right now on streaming, especially. And I think this film has probably enough support to, to give that, uh, that show kind of a leg up on, uh, you know, things like what Amazon have the Good Omens show and a lot of like the fantasy sci-fi kind of uh, sphere. So I think, um, you know, look at what we're seeing right now on HBO with the Watchmen all of a sudden has a TV show and it's like a huge thing that everybody's talking about. I still haven't checked it out myself, but um, I, I think, the, you know, that's kind of a testament to these properties and uh, how they're able to to find new avenues to expand on uh, on the world of the story, because uh, in the case of Watchmen, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's a beloved comic, but that film did like, okay at the box office, basically. Uh, so it's, it's interesting that they're, you know, they're giving it, taking another crack at that. So I, yeah, I think there's an event horizon show could definitely be, uh, be something worthwhile, I think. Okay. So two thoughts here. Uh, first is, is kind of a footnote because I was thinking about Watchmen a little bit earlier and didn't bring it up, but since that door has been open, now I'm going to, um, I would I would recommend checking it out. Uh, I was very very dubious about about them bringing this back as a series, and I have been consistently impressed. Um, I I love it. It's probably one of my favorite things that I've seen on HBO in a long time, um, and it's another instance of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross doing some incredible score work. Um, so I would highly recommend that. In fact. Uh, Earlier this week, I went back and revisited the director's cut of, of the Watchmen movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I saw I saw the theatrical cut the weekend that it opened. I liked it then. Uh, I like it now. I don't think it's a perfect movie, but I, I enjoy it quite a bit. And I can understand some of the changes that were made. Um, but I, I love the new series. There's only two episodes left at the time that we're recording this. Uh, they haven't said whether or not they're going to attempt a second season. Uh, Damon Lindelof has said that if, if HBO wants to do a second season, he most likely will not be back. It will be someone else tackling it. Um, so who knows what the future holds for that. But um, it, it is well worth your time if you're even the least bit interested. I, I am actually. I, I, I also really like the Zack Snyder film. Uh, I actually have the what is it? The ultimate cut or the one that's like three and a half out with the animated sequence edited into it. I actually think that, you know, it's, it's got its cheesy moments uh, in that film, but I, I do for the most part really enjoy that, uh, that world. I like the the graphic novels quite a bit. 
So I am very curious about the the TV show. So now, yeah, you're you're giving me the uh, an extra push to finally <laughs> jump on board that. I wonder if for that series, and I don't know if this is something that even Event Horizon could could embrace. I mean, there's there's been a there's been quite a bit of success in the last several years with anthology series. So I almost wonder if they do a second season of Watchmen, if they would just follow different characters in this world and kind of expand on it that way. That way, you know, each season kind of has its own identity. And, and uh, you know, rather than having a new creative uh, team or showrunner come in and and take, a, a, you know, take a story and kind of you know, uh, bomb it. Uh, they can they create their their new a new story to tell. So I wonder if that may be something that they'll be exploring. I think that would be the wisest way to do it if they do opt for a second season. Um, so that was that was my footnote. Now my other thought is is about Amazon. So when when this was first announced, I, I felt a little bit concerned simply because there's there's almost two eras of original programming for Amazon. Uh, do you remember when they, when they released like maybe eight or 10 different pilots yep. for different things that they were considering? Yeah. Zombie land was one of them. I remember. Yeah. There were a lot of bad ones. Like yeah. there were a couple that were okay. I, I enjoyed their take on the tick, but a lot of them were just not good. Uh, so that was my immediate knee jerk reaction. But then after I sat and thought about it a little bit, I haven't watched everything that they've been doing recently, but I watched a couple of episodes of Good Omens. I liked that. Um, what I really was impressed by was The Boys. So I, I think that given uh, a darker, challenging property with what they're doing today, they could probably have some success with it. So my my initial... Uh, my initial fear on that may have just been a knee-jerk reaction and not anything based in current reality. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I think Amazon's still kind of try, find, trying to find its way as far as what its brand identity is as a as an original content creator. I think The Boys has probably helped that a little bit more, uh, and I, I think that they could probably benefit from the whatever cachet they would get from a, taking on an, uh, a cult property like event horizon and building on it. So yeah, I, um, yeah, I think that there's, there's a lot, there's a lot to work with here. Um, so John, is there anything about the film event horizon that we haven't talked about that you wanted to mention before we start winding down? Well, the only thing that, that I, that I was thinking about as we were just talking over the last couple of minutes, you mentioned the anthology idea mm -hmm. and there, there is a way that if they chose to approach the series from a, a similar standpoint, they could both go off in a completely new direction, but also tie it back to the original. Um, so at the end of the film, uh, you know, pretty much the only one that has survived is Jolie Richardson's character. And we're kind of left with this question is like, Okay, is she carrying this with her, or was it all destroyed back on the event horizon? So, you know, there there would be a, an opportunity to kind of uh, almost use that character as as the MacGuffin carrying the story forward if they didn't want to go back and tread ground that was already tread by the movies. Mm -hmm. uh, that's somewhat intriguing to me, but I also don't see how you can really have an event horizon series without having the event horizon. Right. And I don't think that the film 
has enough uh, brand recognition for them to be like, you all know that movie from 22 years ago <laughs> that nobody saw in theaters, right? We're all on the same page with Event Horizon. And then like 10% of the audience will be like, we are. Um, so I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, I think that's an interesting idea, but I feel like that would be like almost, that would be more the second season. Like do a first season expanding on this story and both crews and then have, have that be like an avenue for the second season following uh, with this, whoever survivors and maybe they take the, the, uh, you know, the possession of whatever was on the ship and they take that with them somewhere else to a space station to something else. And it kind of travels with that person. I think that would be now I'm thinking about that Denzel Washington movie fallen where this just oh, yeah. touches yeah. and it travels. So I wonder if it's, uh, it would be almost that kind of, uh, that kind of logic might happen. Something with that. I think there's, there's, there's a lot of meat on the, on the bones of a space meets hell kind of parallel. And I think that, you know, someone like a Damon Lindelof or, or someone like that could could really wring a lot of thematic juice out of uh, out of that you know exploration of of where do those cross, where do they where do they uh, diverge, and and are could they technically be the same thing? Yes, and I, I would like to see if if they pursue it. I, I would like to see some of that. Um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Some of, some of that abstract nature left in to where, you know, it doesn't necessarily fall firmly on the side of science or faith where the, you know, the, the viewers can, can struggle with that just as much as the characters may. Yeah. So do you, do you like the way that the theatrical cut ends where it's just the doors closing suddenly, or do you feel like that is in a way sort of a cop out? I think it's kind of like a cliffhanger. I mean, I think it sets you up for a continuation of the story that at least up to this point, we've, we've never gotten it. Right. Uh, and I also think it, it kind of falls in line with a sequence that we see early on in the film. Uh, there's that sequence where Sam Neill is in, um, is in the, um, Oh, I believe he's shaving. Um, and then the blinds on that are covering the window to space open up and you kind of pull out and there's this very uh, disorienting pull back where the camera's twisting and you're seeing this model kind of spinning, but it's actually the, the camera that's moving. Um, so, so we have those two where, you know, there's, uh, there's this portal that opens up early in the movie and then there's this portal that closes and all we're left is you know blackness and i believe the prodigy is the credits roll <laughs> yeah i i like that I, I i think there's an argument to be made either way with the with the, the ending of the theatrical cut because it is one of those like doom final jumps get like almost the end of um <laughs> reminded me of uh the end of carrie where she's at carrie's grave and she pops out and then oh it's a nightmare yes. or is it you know that kind of thing um but yeah i i I, I, do, I hope that if they do do the show, and again, I hope that it isn't something that just falls apart in development hell, uh, ironically enough, considering the, the themes of the movie, <laughs> um, I, that, that they do maintain that, that, you know, that, uh, that, that, that open to, in, you know, they keep it open to interpretation so the viewers yeah. don't get a, a clear cut answer one way or another. Cause I think that's what makes it, uh, what makes the, you know, what makes the film really, you know, gives added depth to what could otherwise be sort of just a, you know, a sci-fi horror B movie. It, it adds that extra element where you're like, well, geez, what if hell is that? What if, you know, what if it is just another dimension or maybe it's not, you know, I like that, 
that uh, that idea, and I think there's there's a lot to work with there. So, so John Cohorn, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Um, then you get into the the whole discussion of you know is this actually evil, right? Or is it is it just chaos that's beyond our understanding? Um, because either one of those are are potentially terrifying. Um, but I, I think it's it's something cool for both the characters and the viewers to wrestle with. Yeah, it's a, it's that old thing like magic is just like science that we don't understand. Magic exactly. or witchcraft. Yeah, it's that whole thing. So uh, yeah, I, I um, definitely recommend by both of us check out Event Horizon. It's actually streaming, ironically enough, or maybe appropriately enough, on Amazon Prime Video. So uh, <laughs> they're already they're already basically in the Event Horizon business. They just need to sign some extra paperwork, I guess, to to make it happen and uh, you know get that green light going. So John Cohorn, tell people where they can find you on social media. Okay, uh, on Twitter, where is where I usually do most of my gabbing about movies. Uh, it's at the horror aisle, um, or they can check out my writing at modernhorrors.com. Awesome. John, thank you so much for coming back on the show and uh, getting me to finally watch this and overcome like uh, teenage me's hesitation of, of, final, of you know, finally biting the bullet and watching Event Horizon. Uh, we'll have to find something else equally interesting to talk about and, and have you on again sometime soon. That sounds great, Rob. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks, John. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. Z-R-O-O-K-E-D. Oh, <laughs> 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 <laughs>